Well, it always feels good to sing a song that angels have introduced to us. That's the song they sang the night Jesus was born and told the shepherds to go to Bethlehem and find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. Well, it's a a season that uh, I think most of us, there's a few naysayers I'm sure in the group, but most of us uh, really look forward to, to this time of year. This is something that really lifts our spirits Uh, And it's all we've ever known. We've never known anything other than this. But there hasn't always been a Christmas. And that's something you also have to come to grips with. We've been doing this for 2,000 years. But before Christ, 4,000 years before, there was no Christmas. And it's very hard for us to imagine a time when there was no Christmas. Lucy Uh, tried to get us to understand this in the Chronicles of Narnia. She used these words. She said, it's always winter, but never Christmas. And just think about those words. Imagine living your life where it's always winter. I have some friends who live up in Ohio. (laughs) Some of you from up north migrated down here. Always winter, but never Christmas to look forward to in the middle of that. That's depressing, <laughs> uh, that's sad to think of a season with no, no, no Christmas. Uh, life in the Old Testament was, was quite a bit darker than the life you're enjoying here on this side of Calvary. Life in the Old Testament was darker and that's why when you hear the prophecies about the King coming, the Messiah coming, Jesus being born, they always use this uh, uh, imagery like a light has come to shine in the darkness, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of of Israel. It's always this light and hope and joy that are on the way because in the Old Testament, things were a lot less optimistic. They didn't know if it would ever be good. You want to talk about depressing? Imagine your life in its worst moment. Imagine living in your biggest trials, in your biggest conflict, and not knowing if it would ever get better than it is right now. Ugh, you know what I'm saying? You have a sick feeling in your stomach that there is nothing better coming. You know, the business is struggling. I don't know if it will ever pull out. The economy's in recession. Will it ever be good again? You know, uh, uh, my relationships are struggling. I don't know if we'll ever get this worked out. Listen, hopelessness will really mess with you. And in the Old Testament, things were darker and things were less optimistic. They were, they, were, they, were, they were a little more hopeless than anything you've ever lived through. And so God comes in the Old Testament to introduce to his people the idea of Christmas. There was no fact of Christmas. It never happened. But he's talking before Bethlehem to his people and saying, listen, I want to introduce something to you. Let's see if I can challenge your thinking a little bit. It won't always be this way because one day I'm going to send my promised son into this world and he's going to be that long-awaited king. Israel's very fixated on Messiah as king. He's going to be that long-awaited king that you've been wanting. And that message, when God started introducing the concepts of Christmas, was the very language, the very ideology that began to turn everything around for this world in the Old Testament era. Now, remember in the days of Isaiah, I'm back in the Old Testament now, the prophet Isaiah, 
Israel had turned her back on God. Israel had no no counselor giving good advice to the nation. They were listening to all the talking heads and all the pundits who were telling them all the wrong things and they were following all that bad advice. There was no wonderful counselor. There was no godly voices other than one or two prophets and everybody largely ignored those prophets. Israel had turned her back on God. There was no hope. There was no message that it's going to get better. Families had no voice saying to them, listen, it's tough now, but listen, hope is coming. It's going to be okay. And it was that way for a long time until Isaiah chapter 9. And in Isaiah chapter 9, God said that this season of discouragement is going to come to an end very soon. This depression you're living in is going to come to an end soon. And a new era is on the way. An era that is characterized by light and hope and optimism. And this era that's coming is going to be brought in by the birth of a child. The long-awaited king is coming. And when he comes, it's going to turn everything around for you. Let me read from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has the light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Now, this is the language of Isaiah. Now, this is God speaking through Isaiah to the, the nation of Israel. He's saying, you've walked in darkness, but listen, you're going to walk in light in just a few days. You've lived in the shadow of death, but, but hope and joy are just about to break forth upon this world. You've lived in a depressed era all of your life. You've lived in a depressed country all your life, but blessings are on the way. And verse 6 is where it starts getting real interesting for us. Here's the message that's going to turn it all around. He introduces to us the king with four names. Here's what he says. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Not just Counselor, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So when the country was all distraught, here comes the prophet with a message from God. Don't worry because it's about to get really good around here. The king with four names is, is on the way. And he's going to be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father. You've never even lived in an era of peace. You don't even know what peace is like. But the prince of peace is on the way. I'll be a little transparent with you this morning. I've, in my life... I know when, when I stand up here and I speak to you on Sunday and I only let you see the best version of me and, and, and the optimistic version of me, and uh, I try to be transparent from time to time, but in this context, we only see the best of each other. And, and we come into a, a room like this to worship God on Sunday, and, and you know the problems you have, but you see the people around you, and we always tend to think, well, I've got all this drama and all these problems and all... But the guy sitting next to me, he doesn't have any issues. He's living a perfect life, you know. And, and, and I've got all this financial struggle and job struggle and relational struggle and, and struggle with sin. But see the pastor up there, he doesn't have any struggles at all. I want you to know none of that is true. 
We all have struggles. I, I, as I was reflecting in my life, I, I have come through some very dark and very trying situations. And as I was reflecting back, I think none of those situations were more difficult than dealing with my feelings of loneliness and betrayal and sense of loss that came into my life when people that I loved would not stand up for me. When I was attacked, people that I loved would not defend me. Looking back in my ministry, I I can see now that was one of my most desperate hours in ministry, in life. Because of that, I'm very sympathetic to my friends in Asia where I have ministered now for all of these years. And you guys have got to meet a lot of our Asian disciples. I'm very sympathetic to them. When they are facing being outcast and cut off and rejected by their families for taking a decision for Jesus Christ to be his follower or to be baptized or to go tell their parents, I put my faith in Christ and I'm going to follow Jesus. He's my king and he's my Lord. What the families do to those kids and the rejection they have to deal with and the loneliness they have to deal with, I'm very, very sympathetic to that. Because I understand how painful it feels to try to make a stand all alone when no one will stand with you. Listen, it can be a heart-rending experience when friends let you down. Or someone you thought was faithful disappoints you and you realize they're, they're not. And I'm sure if we could hear the stories in the room this morning, everyone in here has some similar story to mine where you felt betrayed by someone you love. I think most of us have experienced some form of that. So my mission really this morning is to remind you that Christmas is about a promised king. Uh, In a few weeks, we're going to give away a book to every family, a children's reader for you to read to your kids about the promised king. Uh, We'll be doing a skit in a few weeks about a promised king. This is really the story of Christmas, that God was going to send that promised king into this world. He's introduced in Isaiah 9-6. We know he has more names than this, but in Isaiah 9-6, he's introduced as a king with four names. And we're going to focus on one of those names this morning. Jesus is a king who really stands by his people. As I was thinking about my own situation and how Jesus stands by his people, I was thinking about the New Testament, and a story comes to mind very quickly. Timothy was a very young pastor. As far as we know, one of the youngest, because Paul says to him, let no man despise your youth. Evidently, they were mocking Timothy and saying, you can't, who do you think you are to lead us? You're younger than we are. And Paul says, spiritual development and spiritual age has nothing to do with biological age. For those of you who are in discipleship, you understand the language I'm using right now. And he says, Timothy, you're spiritually mature. Get up and lead them. Even though you're biologically a young man, just lead them, Timothy, and don't let them talk you down. And I want to say to every, we have a very young church, and I want to say to our our 19 and our 20-year-olds and even our 30-year-olds, do, do not be intimidated about leading for Jesus Christ here at this church. You just lead. If, if, you're, if, you're, if you feel like, well, I'm too young to lead, 
Those are feelings you're putting on yourself. They're not real. Go ahead and lead. God's empowering you. God's equipping you. Just lead. But Timothy stood up to lead. And the reason, I guess maybe he was so self-conscious, he was the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And I've taught you through Ephesus a few weeks ago. I taught you about the idolatry in Ephesus when we went through the, the, the Reverse the Curse series. Excuse me, series about the wickedness that existed and the idolatry in Ephesus. That's where Timothy pastored. And it was a tough place to pastor. I often hear people telling me, oh, it's such a hard place to start a church. Listen, there are no harder places to start a church and make disciples than Ephesus or Corinth. Uh, and we have the record on how, how they did it. They did it through relationships. They did it slowly. They did it systematically. They did it by loving people. They, they did it uh, not inside the, the walls of the church. They did it out in the homes. They did it at kitchen tables. They, they, they met people where they were and they loved them and they built relationships with those people. And Timothy trying to lead the church at Ephesus, by the way, was the largest church of all of the churches mentioned in the New Testament. Timothy, the youngest pastor with the largest church, trying to lead in the most wicked city. It's a magic combination. And, and as he's trying to lead leaders... He thought had his back and would be faithful to the end, walked out and left him. He's trying to lead for, and they just abandoned him when things got difficult. And when that happened, the hurt and the pain that Timothy felt from being abandoned by those he trusted, that pain was so intense that Timothy just kind of shut down. Now, let's see if I can find some common ground with you. Have you ever just felt like you wanted to curl up, get on the couch with the quilt? And just stay there for about a month. It's like the breakers flip. And you're just like, I'm done. You know, I'm just done with what? Everything. Cooking, cleaning, phone calls. You know, I just want to play a, a video game and get on the couch. I don't want to. It's just, just like everything shuts down. You know? And that's where Timothy was. Because he felt abandoned. And that feeling was so intense. He eventually reached out to his disciple maker. The apostle Paul. The one who mentored him. And Paul's like, well, are you done, Timothy? Are you going to get back in the game? Or are you just going to sit on the couch and eat chips ahoy? Or what, what are you going to do, man? And so Timothy began to tell him, here's what happened and here's how I feel. And Paul, being a transparent mentor, which we have scores and scores of them here, and I thank you for being just like Paul. Paul said, well, listen, I've lived through a similar thing myself, Timothy. And here's what the role of a disciple maker is really about. It's about being able to speak into the lives of those you're discipling with transparency and say, I've been there. And here's how God brought me through it. Here's how, here's how I got sane. Here's how I got right. Here's how I got off the couch. Whatever metaphor you want to use. Here's how I got back on the horse. And here, here's how I got re-engaged even though I went through a traumatic moment in my life. And Paul begins to talk to Timothy in his writings and say, Timothy, I've been there. I know what it feels like, and here's what God did to help me. And here's what Paul spoke about. Paul spoke about a time when he was standing on trial. You remember reading this in the book of Acts. And Paul's put in chains, and he's brought into the hall, and he has to stand before the king and the queen and the Roman governor. And in that scene, Paul is describing to Timothy. In that moment, Paul said, what I really needed is I needed my friends to come and rally around me. In that moment when I was in chains before the, the governor and the king and I had to speak on my own defense about being a follower of Christ. I, listen, in Jerusalem, you've read the book of Acts chapter 2, right? 
There's thousands and thousands and thousands of people being saved in the first chapters of the book of Acts and being baptized. Thousands of people. And Paul now is standing on trial and change. Where are they? Where are all of those people? Listen, in Jerusalem, there's a Peter and a James and a John and, 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 and a Thaddeus and a Bartholomew and, and, a, and a Jude. Where are they? Here, here, Paul is on trial for being a follower of Christ. Where are the apostles? Where are the 120 disciples who are there at the resurrection of Jesus in that first church in Jerusalem? Where is everybody when the apostle Paul is standing on trial? You imagine how depressing this is? <laughs> Sadly, Paul discovered that no one would stand up for him. All who called themselves Christians had abandoned him. He's putting his life on the line to be a follower of Christ. And there's not one other follow, not one follower of Christ on planet earth who will come and stand beside him. Paul recounts it. Let me read it to you. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 16. At my first defense, no one. Timothy, I know what it feels like to be abandoned, buddy. And let me tell you how we're going to get through this together. Here's how we're going to get through it together. Let me tell you how I got through it. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. But all deserted me. And then look at the grace of Paul. You think he's bitter, but he's not. Look how he ends this. May it not be charged against them. I just want to remind Christians that we're to be praying like Jesus taught us to pray for our enemies, for people who disappoint us, who are our friends, for people who let us down. So often we want to pray and we want to use prayer as kind of a get even to God, those people who are not standing with me. Lord, give them a flat tire. You know what I'm saying? But instead, look how Paul's praying. When everybody deserted me, gosh, I, they were probably just scared, weren't they? They probably weren't even sure that I was a real deal. You know what? I killed, I killed some of their families before I got saved. I get it. I wouldn't want to stand by me either now that I think about it. May it not be, may it not be charged against them. You know, Jesus taught us to pray, forgive us as we forgive those who trespass against us. Sometimes we forget what real Christianity is about, don't we? We live a little different version of this. Jesus is kind of raising the bar for us, and Paul's raising it here. And he tells Timothy, listen, here, Timothy, I, I've lived through this. And, and long after I've come through it, I'm not bitter about it. But when I desperately needed someone to stand up at my trial and be a character witness for me. Have you ever been a character witness for somebody at the court? I bet there's several of you in here that have had to go to court and be a character witness for someone. Uh, something pastors get called on to do. Please don't call me this week you know especially if your character is questionable uh but but something you get called on to do every once in a while and uh you know hey you have good character and it'll be easy to do damon that's all i'm saying and, and paul says when i desperately needed someone no one came forward but here in my most desperate moment i learned one of the most valuable lessons of the christian life and it's a lesson I'm going to share with you. It's a lesson he shared with Timothy. Watch what he says. 2 Timothy 4.17. Everyone abandoned me, but the Lord stood by me. 
Paul said, you know, when I was standing there, there was no one with me, and it really hurt my heart and it hurt my feelings. But then I, I remember there's someone standing here that they can't see. The Lord stood by me. And so my encouragement to you this morning is whatever you're going through, you know that the Lord will always stand beside you. Jesus will be your champion. He said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll always stand to help you. He told his disciples, I'm leaving in bodily form. I'm localized right now. But when I leave in bodily form, God in spirit form will come and inhabit every one of your lives who are followers of Christ. And I'll never leave you. You'll never be alone. You'll always feel my power. I'll always always be there well look what he says further he stood by me and strengthened me now I don't know if you've ever been in a tense moment or a trying moment like this where others have forsaken you or where you're 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 having to stand up and defend yourself somehow and he said the Lord just came and stood with me and strengthened me now there's something really special about being put on the spot and feeling the power of the Holy Spirit just overtake you. Didn't prepare a speech. You didn't plan what you were going to say. And the words just come. And the scriptures come. And the, and the defense comes. And in that moment what you know is your counselor is standing right there with you. It's like your attorney is saying, say this, say this, say this. Don't say that. I object. Oh, don't say that. Okay. And he's just guiding you through the conversation. What Paul is saying to Timothy and what I'm saying to you is God will supercharge your life so that you can stand bravely and victoriously in any ordeal that you face this week or in any week to come. And that was good news for Timothy and it's really good news for you and I because the Lord is also standing by us and strengthening us this week. This was the Christmas message. That the prophet Isaiah was trying to communicate to Israel when he said Jesus is the mighty God. He said he's a wonderful counselor, the second name, he is a mighty God. Jesus is the mighty God. During the lifetime of Isaiah, here's what you need to remember about Israel. Israel and all the neighboring nations worship many different idols. Uh, and those who worship idols, there's something really interesting about doing ministry in an idol following idol-worshiping country. Almost always the economy is depressed. Almost always the education system stinks. Almost always the people are oppressed. Almost always it's a place of darkness. Almost always it's a place where slavery and, and sexual abuse thrives. Almost always it's a place where children are mistreated. It's really, really bizarre. And what happens in the scripture is we learn that those who worship idols are enslaved by the very idols they worship. Let me, let me describe this from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 2.8. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the works of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. And because of this, Israel was in a desperate economic uh, situation. They were in a desperate political situation. They were in a desperate spiritual situation because they had turned their backs on God and worshipped idols. Therefore, in a time of trouble, all you have to call on is an idol that you made with your own hands. And what can it do for you? Some of you may wonder when we go to idol-worshipping countries, what is our message? This is our message. You, you, you think you're worshipping the idol, but really the idol has enslaved you. And what can it do for you? There's demonic power behind it. And what can it do for you? 
It doesn't help your life. It can't do anything for you. You made it with your own hands. Uh, The psalmist wrote a lot about this. Let me read from Psalm 115. The idols are silver and gold, the works of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. Imagine this is a song they used to sing in the Old Testament. That's kind of an interesting song for a worship service, isn't it? They have hands, but they do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. Now, imagine what a condemnation that is from the psalmist. Those who make them, they'll become like you. You become like your gods. Well, describe them. Powerless, inactive, dead, mute, blind. You've become like your gods. But then the psalmist continues and he says, let me contrast that with people who worship the promised king. Let me contrast that with people who worship the Lord. Verse 9, O Israel, trust in the Lord, for he is your help and your shield. And every time I read the word help in Psalm 115, it's the word Aetzer. Anybody remember that word? From Genesis when we studied God made Aetzer for Adam, a help for Adam. It's a word for God. Listen to what he said. Oh, trust in the Lord. He is their or their help, and their shield. Oh, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. Listen, other people may have written us off and forgotten, but the Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. And he will bless those who fear the Lord. There's where we get in. Both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. And isn't that what you really want? God's blessing on your life and for your kids to have even a better life. Our situation is never hopeless because we put our trust not in an idol, but in the king who has four names. The king who is called the mighty God. Let me read Isaiah 9, 6 again. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That second name is the one that's captivated me all week. Mighty God. Mighty God is a translation into English from two Hebrew words, El and Gibor. El describes God as mighty, or you've heard the word the Almighty. Mighty, almighty, that's this L name for God. Gibor means warrior, hero, uh, rescuer, or champion. Someone who comes in and saves you. That uh, swoop down, almighty God who comes in like a hero or a champion and defeats the enemy and gives us the victory. Now imagine how encouraged Israel's living in depression... And the prophet says, but hope is on the way because El Gibor is coming. The mighty God, almighty champion is coming to defend you. And listen, I know we live in a really great place, in a really blessed community. You guys have really great jobs. I know we have just like everything in the world going for us. But even in the midst of all of these people and all of this blessing, you can still be lonely and hurting. I get that too. 
And maybe you've gone through some dark days or maybe you're having some very serious struggle. The good news is that the champion of heaven is going to stand between you and the armies. Mighty God, champion of heaven, the almighty champion is coming to stand between the two armies. Let me see if I can explain this word champion. This really is what champion means. And so you'll have to paint a picture in your mind this morning. And to help you paint that picture, I'm going to go to probably the most familiar story in the Bible. In 1 Samuel chapter number 17, there are two armies. The army of Israel and the army of the Philistines. And a valley of Elah running down the middle. The armies are on the slopes of the mountains and in this giant valley between them. And they're looking out across each other, the two armies. Well, let me read the story. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah. And they drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. Verse 3. And the Philistines stood on the mountains on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountains on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines, here's the word, a champion named Goliath. A champion is one who comes and stands between the two armies. Paint that picture in your mind now. Thousands of men, thousands of men, and one lone guy comes down into the valley now. He stood, Goliath, and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. And if he's able to fight with me and kill me, we'll be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Now, this guy was a butt, if you can say that in church. He was a jerk. That's who he was. He was a big, big, loud mouth. He's like some spoiled superstar football player who never had to pass a test in his life. He's like nine feet tall, and everybody deferred to him all his life. Okay? He's a, he's a nine-foot-tall, spoiled, loudmouth baby is what he is. And he comes out into the valley of Elah and he begins to curse God and defy God and mock God and, and, and blaspheme Israel. And I just want you to know he's a picture of the devil to me. Because what the devil does is he taunts you and I constantly to get in the arena and do battle with him. But I want you to pause right here. You don't want to get in the arena and do battle with Satan. He's more powerful than you are in your own power. But he's going to taunt you, come on, I'm there. Come, come on, he's going to rope a dope with you. And he's going to try to get you to get in the arena with him and take him on. You're not a match for him. What you need is a champion who will go fight for you. Are you getting the picture now? A champion stands between two armies. Their champion was nine and a half feet tall. His armor weighed 200 pounds. The head of his spear weighed 25 pounds. Anybody here ever throw the shot put in high school? 16-pound shot put for men, 8-pound eight, eight shot put for, for the, the young ladies. You ever push that thing? That's a chunk of steel, man. And if you can throw it from here to Johnny, you're a strong man. You know, his spearhead weighed 25 pounds. 25 pounds. And he could throw that thing like you could throw a football here in America, okay? And, and this is a monster of a man. This is a giant of a man. He was vulgar, he was arrogant, he was intimidating, and his name was Goliath. And twice a day for 40 days, he walked down in the valley 
and, and with his megaphone, and, and he began to say to everybody, I dare you to send any Israeli man, you're a bunch of cowards, come down here and fight me. Your God is nothing, you are nothing. I mean, just he mocked and mocked and defied God. And the problem was the men of Israel were terrified. No one believed they could beat him. Israel had no champion. Israel had no hero. Israel had no one to stand between the armies. Well, you know the story. David's delivering sandwiches to his brothers at the battlefield. And when David, just a youth, is standing there listening to all of this and watching this big blabbermouth and watching him curse God, David's just a youth. Let no man despise your youth, by the way. Have I mentioned that lately? He's just a youth. And David is incensed. He went nuts. He's like yelling at his own countrymen and saying, what is wrong with you guys? Is there not a cause? Is there not a champion in Israel? What's wrong with you people? Why are you just sitting here in comfort? Go down and engage in the battle. Is there no champion for Israel? And so you know what happened. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and the spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies. I come to you in the name of El Gibor, the mighty God. I come to you in the name of our champion. Our champion is not a man, Goliath. And I come to you in the name of our champion, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And this day, now you want to know, it takes courage to go fight somebody. It takes more courage to tell them where you're going to hit them and what you're going to do to them. He called his shot. The youth says to Goliath, I will strike you down, and in a few minutes I'm going to use your own sword, and I'm going to cut off your own head. And that's what's about to happen in the next 30 seconds. You good? Because we're about to get it on. And I'm going to hit you right there in just a few minutes. You ready? I mean, he's just like, you say, what's happening? I'll tell you what's happened. The power of God's come upon this boy, and he's about to be a champion of Israel. He's coming down to stand between the two armies. One champion, another champion, and they're about to get it on. And that's what the word champion means. A champion fights on your behalf. And that's really what I want you to take away this morning. You have a champion, and he fights on your behalf. You don't have to do all the fighting. He fights on your behalf. Because in your life and in my life, we face our own giants, if you'll let me use it as a metaphor. We have our own problems. And our problems are arrogant and merciless, and they're out there in our face all the time, and they never go away, and our own problems taunt us and intimidate us. And I don't know what yours are, but your giant could be a conflict with a person, it is just there, and it never goes away, and it's always right there in your face. It could be a relentless habit, a habit you've tried to break and can't break, and it's just there, and it will not go away, and it's just persistent and stubborn, and it's like that two-time-a-day-for-40-day Goliath just always keeps turning up in your life. It's like a rut your car defers to and defaults to when you take your hands off the wheel. You just always seem to be struggling with the same habit. Your giant could be a broken relationship, a financial struggle. Listen, it could be overwhelming grief that's got you locked into your own prison and you can't get out because of grief. It could be lingering bitterness. Listen, Christians really struggle with lingering bitterness. And I know this because I talk to Christians all the time and they say to me things like, well, I was really hurt, and they go back to the past and start telling me a story. 
You say, what's going on? Lingering bitterness. Uh, We're locked in chains of things that have happened in the past, and we can't figure out how to get the chains off of us so that we can go forward. Maybe your giant is you don't fit in. I get that. We've got some oddballs here. I'm looking at a few of them, and that's okay. You're uniquely and wonderfully made. You know, and in reality, we're all oddballs in our own way, aren't we? I'll preach this side for a while now that we got you engaged in the message. The truth is, I'm really not sure what normal is anymore. I'm really not. And maybe abnormal is better than being normal. I don't know. But the longer I live, I change my opinions about a few of these things, okay? All I'm saying is we're all uniquely made. And maybe you struggle, though, because you see yourself as different from others. And you say, I just don't fit in. Never have fit in. But, but it's, it's a thing, though, that stays with you and it, it, it inhibits you. It inhibits you from, from, from sharing the gospel or making disciples or being a disciple or engaging in service or, or putting yourself out there. Well, I just don't fit. I don't have close friends. Listen, I want you to know, people who struggle with not having close friends, it is real. It's a pain. It's like Timothy. It's like the pain I talked about, the loneliness from not having people you can completely be transparent with. Listen, this is the beauty of being a disciple at Cornerstone, right here. To be loved by someone, and I can be really who I am, and I can tell you even (laughs) the real me. I I, I don't have to be the best me. I can actually tell you who I am and show you who I am, and you're going to love me anyway. Listen, that's unheard of in, in America. That's unheard of in society. But it's heard of in the discipleship process. Listen, whatever you're facing, remember what Paul wrote to the Ephesian Christians. You're more than conquerors through him that loved us. But the first thing we have to stop doing this week is we have to stop operating in our own power. We have to stop saying, okay, I'm going to go out and fight Satan. No, I have a champion and he fights on my behalf. Yeah, suit up in the armor and, and yeah, show up for battle. Those guys were all suited up in armor and had showed up for battle, but they're not actually going to have to do the doing. The two champions are going to pretty much settle the issue pretty quickly here. And yes, you need to turn out in the full armor of God and, and, and have the shield and the helmet. I got all that, just preached about it a few weeks ago. But what I'm saying to you is you can't win in your own power. That's why God said, here's the Christmas story. A king's coming. He's, he's a wonderful counselor. He's El Gibor, the mighty God. He's the champion who goes to battle for you. This week, let's start confronting our problems in the name of the Lord. Let's square up against our problem and say, okay, problem, listen, I've been fighting with you habit. I've been fighting with you grief. I've been fighting with you introversion and loneliness all of my life. And I'm done fighting you in my own power. And today I come at you in the name of the Lord. I'm going to let my champion whip you. I realize I can't because I keep fighting this battle and here we are again. Listen, I'm going to crush you, but not in my power. I come at you in the name of the living God, the mighty God. What what I'm saying to you is it's different living in your own power than it is facing problems in the power of your champion. This is the Christmas kickoff. The king with four names fights for you. 
And it's not your faith in your faith that wins. And it's not your faith in your ability that wins. It's not your believing in yourself that wins. It's your faith in your champion, Jesus Christ, that is the key to your victory. You see, you don't fight. Your champion fights on your behalf, which means you don't die. Your champion already died for you, and he's already overcome death by the power of his resurrection. You say, well, I just feel like I have to live the perfect life. No, you're missing the point. We don't have to live a perfect life. You're not able to live a perfect life. So your champion already lives a perfect life for us. You say, well, he's other people's champion, but maybe he's not my champion. Listen, Jesus is the champion for every human being. This is the Christmas story, born in a manger, born in obscurity, born in poverty, born in a stable. Who is he? God in human body, God incarnate, the creator, made like you and I. No, not like you and I. You're too well off. He's made like the poorest of us, the most insignificant of us. The, the, the most obscure of us, born into a nobody family in Nowheresville, USA, in a manger into poverty. Who? God, the Son of God. You say, well, I don't know if he gets me. Are you kidding me? He's God for every human. He is the champion of the ordinary. Listen, Jesus lived in obscurity for 30 years in what the great sociologist Jason Aldean would call a rearview town. Nothing. nothing. Nazareth is nothing. He was simply known as the carpenter's son. I often hear or often reflect upon my own teenage years where I would say to my parents, this is so boring, there's nothing to do. Listen, Jesus spent many uneventful days, 30 years worth, and lonely Boring nights in Nazareth. He gets you. Oh, he gets you. He, he's a champion for ordinary people. You say, well, I don't know if he gets me. I'm sick. He's a champion of the sick. Well, I learned this very quickly. One day he walked up to a, a pool of Bethesda. There's a man for 38 years been laying there trying to find some kind of healing with no help. Jesus asked the man, do you want to be healed? And what does the man say? Sir, I have no champion. Sir, I have no man to help me. Everyone else has somebody to help them, but I'm struggling with loneliness. I'm struggling with bitterness. Uh, he's just like you and I. I'm struggling with this and I'm struggling with that. Sir, I have no man. What did Jesus say to him? Well, it's your lucky day, sir. Christmas is here. Sir, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Yeah, that's the mighty God right there just showed up. The champion showed up to give healing to this man. Listen, he's a champion of sinners. He's a champion of those taken captive by addiction. He's a champion of the impure in body and mind. He's a champion of those living in immorality. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He is a hero to those who are sex slaves. He is a hero to those who are slaves to sex. He is a hero to the abused. And he is the champion who has the power to break the violence of the abuser. And you may be thinking still, Pastor, you just don't know the powerful enemy that I'm facing in my life. And, and maybe you're right. I may not know every trial that you're facing this morning, but I do know that Christmas has come. And because Christmas has come, the promised king, the one they called mighty God, Everlasting Father, 
Prince of the, the mighty God, the champion of heaven has come to break the power of sin in your life. He's here now. 2,000 years ago, he came, promise fulfilled. And he's here and he's active and he's engaged right now. And you don't have to do all the fighting and the bleeding and the dying. He has already done it for you. He is the mighty God. Now, let me ask you several questions. I'm done. Some of you maybe need to join this morning. As soon as we go to heads bowed and eyes closed, you just come and, and, and we'll get your information and make you an official part of this church this morning. Maybe you need to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. Maybe that is your step. And maybe we've come to this Christmas moment so you can unwrap the greatest gift ever given. Maybe you just want someone to pray with you and seal the deal. Show you how to call upon Jesus Christ. When our heads are bowed in just a few minutes, there will be people in the back of the room. And they're there to pray with you. That's why they're there. You just slip out of your seat and go take one of their hands and say, pray with me. I need to receive Christ. Or, listen, maybe you need to say to them, pray with me. I've been struggling with several of the things the pastor talked about this morning. And I'm ready, to, I'm ready to whip this, not in my own power, but in the name of Jesus Christ this week. They'll begin to pray with you and they know how to help you. Now I want to speak to every Christian this is kind of a message, the Christmas message of courage this morning. If you knew you had a champion, well, you do know now. If you really believed that your champion would go out in front of the army and fight for you, let me ask you a question. If you knew 100% that Jesus had your back, what great risk would you take for the kingdom of God? I mean, if you really knew God had your back and you had nothing to fear that your champion would fight and defend you, provide for you, protect you, supply all your needs according to his risk, if you really believe, what risk would you be willing to take for the kingdom of God this morning? Would you be willing to get out of your comfort zone and say, God, I'm ready to get on with that thing you've been talking to me about? That thing you've been speaking to me that I need to do, those next steps I need to take, or whatever it is God's speaking to you about, why don't you say to God this morning, God, I get it a little better today. I understand. You're out in front of me fighting between the armies. You're protecting me. You're, you're defending me. Paul said, when no one stood with me, here's the lesson I learned, Timothy, God stood by me, and he empowered me. Have you learned that lesson this morning now? If you really believe that, what risk would you be willing to take for Jesus Christ? Listen, Christian, maybe you've never said to Jesus. Maybe you've said, come into my heart and save me, but you've never said to him, please stand by my side. You promised you would. Let me feel your presence. You said you would speak to me and empower me, and I know you are, but maybe my ears have been dull of hearing. Maybe I, my, my, my heart and ears haven't been open to what you're saying to me. Maybe you're facing something big this week. Why don't you ask him this morning, would you stand? I don't know if anybody will be there to stand with me. I've got to have some hard conversations this week with some people. I don't know if anybody's going to be there with me. I might do it alone. God, would you stand with me? Would you empower me? I think the answer is yes. I think he will. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. 
whatever God's speaking to your heart about this morning, it's time for us to put it into action now. For every believer here this morning, maybe it's just a moment to to wrap your arms around your champion and say to him, God, thank you for reminding me that you've never left me. You're, You're always there for me. Maybe it's a time to give thanks for a champion who stands out in front of the army and fights for you. You don't have to die. He already died. You don't have to die. He already did it for you. Maybe you're struggling with, I'm just not good enough. Listen, you can't live the perfect life. He already lived it for you. It's his character, and therefore it's his name. God, our champion, our defender, our hero. That means that hope and joy and victory are on the way. Christmas has come whatever decisions you need to make I'm going to ask you to make them right now there are people in the back who will pray with you if you need a moment of prayer in a, in a quiet place if you're ready to be a member you can come and join with us very quickly this morning for everyone else you invoke the name of Jesus on your problem right now <clears throat> job, it's a relationship, it's a struggle you're having, invoke the name of Jesus Christ and come at your problem in the name of the Lord. He's very, very capable of defending you. Not even a problem. He is the mighty God. He is the champion, the hero of all who believe in Christ.